Have you ever needed a supportive community in your journey to advance racial equity, stop and prevent oppression, and catalyze change in your life or your organization? Join us in our online community at intentionallyact.com. As James Baldwin wrote, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. Join us online to confront the challenging questions and situations in your journey to advance racial equity as we build community to offer professional, personal, and organizational development, skills, and knowledge. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Atia Martin. Welcome to Intentionally Act Now, a podcast that supports the All Aces mission to activate consciousness, catalyze critical thinking, and transform capabilities that advance racial equity and build resilience within ourselves and our organizations. We feature a wide variety of leading experts in diversity, equity, and inclusion, conflict management, critical race theory, personal growth, and more. Fellow Filipino-American and practitioner scholar for equity and inclusion, Liza Talusin, PhD, joined me as a special guest on All Aces On Air, now called Intentionally Act Live, to explore what anti-blackness really entails. We draw from our experiences as BIPOC, who are often presented by many as the model minority, an idea that is firmly rooted in anti-blackness and white supremacy culture. Dealing with our own internalized racism is something that is deeply uncomfortable, but just as deeply important for all of us to confront, embrace, and resolve if racial equity is realistically to be advanced. Join us on IntentionallyAct.com to keep this conversation going in our online learning community. Hey, everybody. This is Enrico Manalo, uh, back with All Aces On Air. Joining me today is Dr. Liza Toulousan, and today we're going to be talking about uh, anti-Blackness and Asian American identity. So, uh, Liza, would you please uh, introduce yourself to our audience real quick? Sure. First of all, hello, everyone. Liza Toulousan. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm calling in from Massachusetts, just south of Boston on the land of the Massachusetts and the Pequannocket people. And uh, I, ident- gosh, what are the adjectives? So I identify as a scholar, practitioner, identify as Filipino-American, um, as a parent, as a partner, and as someone who finds themselves in this space of doing anti-racism work. And in particular, uh, what does it mean to identify as Asian-American and to engage in anti-racism work? So um, I'm a middle child, which I think is important as I mention that because uh, I feel like so much of my job and what I do is about like navigating differences and trying to be this mediator and someone who's trying to find commonality. And I think that is definitely being a middle child in a family of five. Um, but I am someone who is constantly trying to better understand what it means to engage in anti-racist behavior and practices. So I'm sure it's no surprise, Rico, like I don't have it all figured out. And uh, I'm grateful to spend this hour with you and all of our friends uh, getting a better understanding of what this looks like and how we might be able to do this together. Ah, fantastic. And a lot of that does mirror my own experience as well. Uh, Just to make it really clear for our audience today, both Liza and myself are Filipino-Americans. And that is an identity that I think is also worth talking about because most people don't know 
that Filipino Americans are the second largest uh, Asian ethnic group in the country, um, despite there not being any uh, Chinatowns or Filipino towns. There is a little Manila, but it's not nearly as widespread. Um, so I guess one thing, one place that we could start is uh, how how exactly did you go from being <laughs> Liza to Dr. Tolusan? Oh, right. So I so here's why I sometimes have people call me Dr. Talusan in particular, but we've said, Rico, that like we're going to use Liza is, um, you know, so much of what I do and what I research is about socialization, like how we came to be, how we learned to be ourselves. And so your question is so important because I come from a family of medical doctors who, um, and maybe there's some people who are listening who are like, oh, girl, that happens in my family too, where um, my siblings who are MDs are like the real doctor. Blah. And, and that, he, he worked very hard. <laughs> and um, as we think about like why I chose a PhD and why I chose education is so much of who I am, Rico, came through this educational space. I, um, again, came, you know, was born of immigrant parents who came to the Philip from the Philippines to the United States. And I think like a lot of immigrants, they were getting messages about where they should live and the better neighborhoods and where they should go. And, you know, my parents took their little Filipino family and moved to a predominantly Irish and Italian town and neighborhood where we were one of the few people of color so in reflection, and this is actually what a lot of my research is based in, you know, I can't even tell you that I identified as a person of color growing up because there was nobody to give me that message. There was nothing in my books or my, my teachers certainly weren't even these mirrors for me. And so I spent a good amount of time of my 12 years in public education not understanding what it meant to be a person of color or what that looked like. And I think this is part of our conversation too. I never learned about Asian Americans. It was always a very black, white binary for me growing up. So then I went off to college and, oh, I just, I made a million and one mistakes around race and language and identity because I didn't have exposure to that. And I know that I made college peers upset by some of the words I might have used or my very naive and limited viewpoint that was informed by whiteness and white history and white teaching. And so to answer your question about the journey to me, it has been nearly 20 years of trying to better locate the impact of whiteness on my identity and the impact of whiteness on my education and who I am and what I am. So when I had the opportunity to really dive deeper into issues of race, much of that had to be on my own. I was, um, I thankfully have a writer sister <laughs> and another sister who's an anthropologist, ethnomusicologist. And so they often were like, oh, Liza, here's the 15 books you have to read. My sister Grace still does this. She comes to my house every summer with like these art bags of books. And she's like, here's your summer reading, <laughs> which I'm so grateful for because it's all these texts that I had no exposure to. So what I'm amplifying here is I had to do a lot of this work on my own. I couldn't rely on my school system to teach me about me and my history. And so the past 20 years, honestly, have been about me reading Asian American lit, Black lit, Latinx, Indigenous, multiracial, LGBTQ, 
literature and narratives in order to get to where I am. So I'm a person who now, as I teach, I teach in a master's and doctoral program, I'm constantly providing disruption, realizing that so many people came up through education just like me. And now here I have this position as a professor to go, okay, we are not using white models of theory development. Like, here we go. We are going to start, we're going to read people of color. We are going to read um, theories of color. We're going to read about communities of color. And that's where we're engaging. And so it started out with me not having any of this to now using my role as an instructor and as a professor to be incredibly disruptive about race and identity and in particular education and teaching. So hearing all that makes me feel fantastic because uh, much of what you said mirrors my own experience. You know, like like yourself, my parents are very accomplished academically and they brought me up. Both of them were professors at one point. I grew mm -hmm. up in a university town. Uh, also with not a lot of, uh, so I'll put it like this, when people would kind of say to one of my friends, like, hey, do you know that little Japanese boy? Then people <laughs> say like oh yeah you mean rico mm -hmm. and one thing that really stuck with me from when i was yeah. a kid is a friend and this was an offhand comment and really did not mean anything by it other than to affirm our friendship but what he said to me was uh i forget that you're not white until i don't and it's like yeah. and for a big part of my life my answer to that was me too yeah and so yeah, I was, I was reading something that you wrote and uh, whew, I wish I had the title, but uh, this piece, and perhaps you can help me out with it. It begins with, I was raised anti-black and you know, the hair on my arm stood up a little bit. And as yeah. I was reading it, it's like, yeah, uh, not on purpose at all, yeah. uh, but just because of who I am and where I grew up. Yeah, I did not have access to blackness, and I certainly did not have much access to Asian Americanness. Right. I had much more access towards Asianness, yes. and expectations of what an Asian child should be. But as an American child, that was a very difficult space for me to navigate. So I wish we had met earlier. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I wish I had so many role models earlier. Like, so first, so thank you for mentioning that piece. I remember Rico writing it and then erasing it, writing it, then erasing it, writing it and erasing it. I was like, am I really going to do this? Am I really going to write a piece that starts out with, I grew up anti-Black? Yeah. And I think I've gotten to the point, Rico, where I am comfortable with that like agitation, right? I mean, so to do this work is to be constantly agitated. So I have gotten to this point where I'm like, okay, so this agitation is telling me something. And I also wanted to model that in order for us to even engage in anti-racist work or to engage in, let's just say, diversity or inclusion work, we have to get to a point where we admit or acknowledge or recognize the systems that shaped us. And so you're right. I don't think it was on purpose, right? I, 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 don't, I, I don't think anyone was like, let's raise white supremacists. I don't, right, I don't yeah. think that was the case, maybe, right? Well, that's um, not a sentence that has passed my parents' lips. I'm relatively certain of that. <laughs> yeah, right. But I think the absence of particular messages reinforces that, right? So, um, you know, I was mentioning this, I, I'm like 24 years in education at this point. I, I, I've never left, right? So after college, I went right to grad school, and then I was teaching and doing educational administration, both in higher ed and K-12, 
and K-8, and then bouncing back in and forth, back and forth to higher ed. And even today, right, there are really distinct messages about anti-Blackness in our curriculum. And it is why, you know, I just had class on Monday with my um, master's students. And I do start out, I was like, all right, y'all, buckle up. Because <laughs> this semester, for some of you, is going to be the most affirming thing that's ever happened to you in education, where you finally get to read about Black scholars and Black communities and um, Black joy and Black brilliance. And for others of you, this will be the first time that you have also read about Black scholars and Black communities and Black joy and Black brilliance. And so there's a population of you that are going to feel so loved on. And there's another population in my class of you that's going to be like, what the heck is happening? What did I learn? Like, oh my gosh, is everything that I do messy? And I, I say to them, yes, everything that we've learned in education is so messy. So let's start, let's start. I'm, I'm not even interested in you tidying it up. Let's just lay it all out. Mm, yeah. right? So it's not about cleaning it up. It's like, can we even confront the messiness? And so, yeah, I tell my students, I'm like, grab your water. It is after five, grab a drink. Like, I don't know what you need to get through this class, but I am here to tell you, it is going to be disruptive because I've got, you know, 30 years of ed your education to disrupt um, because it's it. very rooted in that. Yeah, Yeah. no, absolutely. And I think to your, your point about taking everything out so you can see Ooh. there, it's amazing how how infrequently people are encouraged to do that or given the opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, because so my background is in conflict resolution. And right. the <laughs> problem is never the problem. Right. It's these small interrelated things and you got to shift this little piece over here so that this bigger piece can move. And that kind of entanglement, it's intimidating. And so people kind of proceed very linearly and right. problem at a time. But these these issues are time bound, right? Uh, so we're motivated to seek resolution faster than we might otherwise. Right, right. So can I follow up? I have a question then for you. Yes, <laughs> so, I mean, we are certainly in a time of great conflict. And the question that I often get, which I'm going to toss to you as an expert, uh, the question I often get is, so leading up to this upcoming election, mm. Clearly, there's lots of conversations in which people feel tension and conflict. And Rico, as you just mentioned, it it's not just a quick linear fix, right? And resolving conflict actually requires a lot of different nuances and time bound. So what happens when you get that question, when people ask you, you know, knowing that the current election brings up a lot of conflict and discourse and tough conversations, are there particular things that you tell people as they seek to resolve some of that conflict in their lives? So one thing that I try to make very clear to people is that what I do is I don't fix people. Right. right? Only we can fix ourselves. Why not? I'm kidding. <laughs> because why didn't you? <laughs> well, this session is not long enough to talk about why that's a problem, but it's a problem, right? So nobody you have children, right? And uh, you were just telling me that one is about to go off to college, is almost an adult, but oh. uh, to you, he's always gonna be a child in yeah. some sense, right? Yeah. And so you can have all the information in the world and you can know best, but unless 
that that boy finds his own way. He's not going to believe right. it. He's not going to live it. He's not going to buy into it. Right. And this is why those relationships are, are so important. We're often very focused on what's happening uh, with people that we don't even directly know. And so we don't really pay attention to the people we do know oh, and the, the things that we actually can do. So at All Aces, we talk about this as our circle of influence versus our mm. circle of concern. Like I'm concerned about all the bad stuff yeah. that's happening in the world, but what can I influence? I can influence some concrete things. I can have real conversations with real actual people who can maybe have conversations with others as well. So really, if we're working through a problem, we have to think about relationships because if there's no relationship, then it's not worth our time to invest in. Right. And right. if what we're trying to do is take care of people or make sure make sure that everybody's taken care of, then we have to approach it from a really human level. And it can't be this top down, abstract, really right. distant kind of thing. It's got to be immediate. It's got to be real. And it's got to be something that we can hold and touch if we want to be able to to bank on it. Right. I'm taking notes, by the way, <laughs> things that you just said. So, yes. <laughs> I can't remember what I said. I hope it was good. <laughs> so good. Right. No, that's really helpful because, I mean, you know, one of the things that you and I had chatted about even before this piece was, you know, uh, what is the relationship of our, and you and I both identify as Filipinx, but this I, aspect of racial identity and conflict or racial identity and anti-Blackness or racial identity in the current political climate. And I love how you just even phrase like, I have a huge circle of concern. There's almost nothing that I'm not concerned about, right? Whether it's race, class, gender, ability, family structure, orientation, COVID, right? Like protest, all these things. And then um, I know that I can get really overwhelmed with the urgency to fix it all, of which of course I can't actually fix it all. So um, it was just a nice reminder, even as you wrote circle of influence, because I'm finding myself in this moment, and I do root it in my identity as Filipino, where um, my circle of influence can be my family or immediate family, but it's also who can I actually influence, right? Because I do certainly have people in my life who I just don't know if I can influence them in a particular way, or to influence them actually means to put myself in a traumatic space or a toxic space right where that discourse is actually rooted in my humanity or the humanity of others and so um you know i'm constantly thinking about especially leading up to the national election where i'm like i know my voice and my agency can be so helpful and what does it mean to engage in people with whom i have so much conflict with particularly around my identity so thank you for that food thought <laughs> i think i need to chew on that for a little bit but I, I, someone wrote about concentric circles. Yes, I now moved it into a concentric circle. I created some overlap in my notebook. So well, I mean, for me, part of this is uh, in rec a relationship with myself, right? Mm -hmm. So you were talking about how it took all of that just to get you to a place where oh, you can yeah. help to teach other people about what's going on, what you've seen, and how that mm -hmm. relates to the identities that we form. And... Um, different relationships between groups of non-white people. Yeah. Uh, so at All Aces, we think of change, creating positive change through first locating it within ourselves, working on that, 
uh, my path to where we are today was perhaps not as straightforward, but mm -hmm. uh, a big factor into why I studied conflict is because I was noticing so many conflicts within myself, right? Ah, um, yeah. And for a long time, that it made me really upset and really angry. And yeah. uh, it's really hard to work on things when you don't have the tools to even identify right. what you're feeling or if it's real or if you're crazy or if right so i wonder if we could spend a little bit of time connecting the dots between asian american identity and blackness because Ooh. i don't obviously yeah. a lot of people yes in 40 minutes okay yeah <laughs> let's let's go, go. There. let's do this because <laughs> So, so I want to put a couple of like moments out before I share what I think is relevant in here. One is just as a reminder to listeners, and I have to do this as a reminder to myself, right? That Asian America is not a monolithic experience or identity that even though in this country we talking about, we talk about Asian Americans, there's really diverse immigration status, refugee status, generation status, class, money, wealth, like all these other intersections of identity that um, inform and impact the Asian and um, Asian and American experience. So, um, so first, there's that piece, right? So, I think for me, it's about speaking specifically as an Asian American who grew up in a predominantly white space, in absence, both in terms of physical proximity and structural proximity to people who are black and to black information, black knowledge, black brilliance. And so when I think about this connection as an Asian American, for me, the absence of blackness was incredibly present, right? That absence was so present. So um, the reason why I started to do the kind of research that I was doing, which is taking this life history methodology, exit, uh, taking Asian American educators. And my big question was, why are you educators, right? And I'm one of them too. I was like, <laughs> You, there was like nothing in our books, in our workbooks, in our assignments. And certainly I didn't have Asian American teachers. So I was like, how did we decide to become teachers? Like, how does that happen when you have no role models and no affirmation? How do you find yourself in a field? And so that's what my, my research, that's what I was really curious about, right? So I found a group of people, there was like 22 participants and I did this life history methodology, which it was, I want you to go all the way back to your education and start tracing it, right? What okay. did you learn? What did you notice? What did you see? And I had this assumption, cause I grew up in the Boston area where I was like, okay, it must've just been me learning about Irish and, Irish and Italian people. Like you all in the Bay area must've learned about other types, right? And what I found was that nationally in the United States, every single Asian American administrator that I interviewed, when I said, what were the first or earliest messages that you learned about Asians in your curriculum? Across the board, Pearl Harbor, Japanese internment. And I'm talking like a paragraph, right? Not like we spent a year talking about Japanese internment. It was like a paragraph somewhere in a book. Um, just that the Chinese built part of the railroad, there was never any like information beyond that. It was like, oh, and some Chinese people built the railroad, right? Like that was the depth. And then the Vietnam War. Okay. Those were the four things that we learned about Asian Americans. So then I would say, well, what did you learn about black people in your curriculum? 
slavery, right? And that the, the complicated story of enslavement was not part of the narrative, right? It was like, oh, and then Black Africans showed up, right? That was how so many of us, and I'm like 45, learned about that experience. And then we jump, <laughs> then we jump to Martin Luther King, right? right? There, is, there was not a lot in there. There's certain, I certainly did not learn about redlining or racism in the GI Bill. Like that was not part of my education. So then as I think about that, that statement I made, I grew up anti-Black. Um, if those are the only messages sent to me about Asian Americans and also Black people, then how else could I have escaped that, right? If that was the constant message and I was being assessed on those messages and tested on those messages and advanced grade to grade based on those messages. Yeah. So on one hand, Rico, for me, it was about curriculum and the absence and presence of the messages that were chosen in curriculum. But then it also was about my role models. I didn't have a, a black teacher until sophomore year of college. Mm, yeah. Right. Before, me, actually, yeah. Yeah. And that was like going on Twitter at one point. People were like, when did you first have a black teacher? Sophomore year in college? Are you joking? And then I think about all of my peers who didn't go to college, mm -hmm. who went through their educational experience, never learning from a black scholar, teacher, professor. And then ask me when I had my first Asian one. Ready? My doctoral program. <laughs> it was the first time I had an Asian professor. And that person was um, Samoan, right? So. So that's this. So, I mean, I know that was like kind of this lengthy like monologue here, but as I think about the structures, right, how did we learn this? Where did it come from? A lot of the work that I do is about addressing structures. So how do we need to change curriculum? How do we change teacher prep? How do we change the decisions about the textbooks that we use and uh, beyond just who are the people teaching? Mm -hmm. So you said you resonated with some of that. Did you also notice like absence of Asian America, absence of messages about Black history beyond some of those, beyond enslavement, beyond then jumping to Martin Luther King. What did you notice about your educational experience? So the thing that popped into my mind was, uh, and I am I grew up in New Hampshire, so oh, yeah. even wider than the Boston area. Uh, and I remember learning about, uh, I think we were talking about the Mayflower or something, because all of my classmates were saying, oh, I'm related to so-and-so who came oh over on the ship. And when it came to me, it was like, yeah, none of my people were on that ship. Right. <laughs> my parents got here in 1981. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I do remember just uh, sticking out because of that. But, yeah, just kind of other uncomfortable things. And on on balance i think i had really great teachers growing up especially given the time and where where i did grow up but there are a number of times when my teachers would ask me a child like oh rico do you have anything else to say about this asian thing like no because i'm not korean i'm not japanese i'm not also i'm a child and a student in your class <laughs> like right so yeah, definitely that resonates. Um, and you know, as a, as I've in my adult life, what I'm really starting to understand is, uh, you know, as a kid, we learn that saying, uh, "To the victor go the spoils," or uh, "History is written by the victors." But we don't really investigate what that means. And once you do it, it op opens up this this whole door that I don't know about you, but I haven't been able to shut it again. Just knowing what's uh, on the other right. side. 
Right, right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a big fan of the Matrix. <laughs> and so I often think, and I was, I forget, I think I was watching like the social dilemma that movie that documentary that just came out where they mentioned the matrix as well so you know essentially the idea of the matrix is like you don't even know you're in it yeah. until you're not in it right and so um but how do you even fix the thing that you're in if you don't even know that you're in something and so i often think about that level of discourse as um as whiteness as education and i meant i noticed that there was a comment about like circles of influence so i had also written a blog it was a couple of years ago around like, um, I would get this question all the time. So people would say like, okay, Liza, so you are highlighting for me that my circle of influence is predominantly white or predominantly black or predominantly Asian, like some sort of homo homogenousness in there. And so, homogeneity in there. And so sometimes the question I get, right? And I think it's a well-meaning question is, so are you telling me I should like go find other friends? Like, should I? Is the goal for me to like come up with a list of all my different racially identified friends? And and it's a hard one to answer because it's like, yes, no, and, right? right. Like, yeah. yes, I'm so glad that you're acknowledging that your friend group, if you are locating a particular identity, are all white or are all one percenters or all, right, people with a, a temporary ability, like whatever that category is. The, the no part is, we shouldn't be developing relate. We shouldn't be, we should be, we should be developing authentic relationships. Right. Yeah. So I am confident that everybody in my friend group is there because I have an authentic relationship. There's, um, uh, there's care going back and forth, right. There's, uh, there's experience, there's depth to these relationships. But then the question is, okay, so then what am I supposed to do? Like, how do I go develop these relationships? And so I always ask people to think structurally, right? What are the structures that have kept you from developing more cross-racially meaningful relationships or cross-racially meaningful things? So real quickly here, because a lot of times uh, in the same conversation, people will see uh, the term like structural racism and systemic racism and kind of yeah. make the assumption that those things are one in the same, when in fact they are a bit different from each other. Uh, according to different definitions. So I'm just curious for you, like what, uh, <laughs> if we could just clearly lay out what we mean by- Oh uh, gosh, clearly lay out, okay. Uh, more or less, maybe on the less side. <laughs> yeah, so I'm gonna give you my version. And sure. as we know, with any of these things, there's like multiple yes. versions of these, right? Welcome to social science, right? Right, welcome to social science. There's like multiple versions. So I think for me, um, when I think about systemic racism, systemic anything, systemic injustice, that I'm often looking at, I have to go, I have to go backwards more than just two years, three years, five years. I usually have to go to when was the system created mm. and for whom did the system benefit? Uh -huh. And then how did that travel through, right? So I often think about systems as kind of these big markers, like big policies or big institutions like religion, right, is a big institution. So I, I, I tend to, and again, every social scientist is welcome to disagree with me, welcome to social sciences. So for me, systems are what are these big, what are these big things in place? When I think about structural racism, to be honest, when I think structural, I think like, oh, I can mess with that structure. I can't always mess with systems, 
Mm. But so what I often teach in my class are what are if you think about your school building or the policies that are within your schools or um, kind of like the foundations kind of like. So I think about systemic racism as the land and structural racism as the building that sits on it. Gotcha. Right? There's not a lot. And we know that land has been taken from people. Right. Mm. And so when I think about these structures, I often go, oh, what can I change about this structure? So back to the piece about those friendships, what are the structures that are, exist that keep your friend group a particular way? So yeah. super practical example. One of the structures that often happens in schools is that um, the PTA or the parent council meets at like 8 a.m. Okay. Bye. Right. <laughs> right. You can actually change that structure because now that just privileges parents who can take time off or caregivers who can take time off. And so what does it mean for you to have a parent council meeting at 8 a.m. and at 7 p.m. where you offer child care and dinner? Right. That's a structure that can be changed, for example. So, again, there's probably going to be lots of disagreement. People are probably going to say she's wrong, but it helps me to conceptualize the systems, which are much more difficult and embedded and have lots of things on it. And the structure is what are these things that I can change and adapt that are decision making based. So presumably if we disrupt the structure, then because it's kind of like holding up the system, then the system will reflect that kind of change. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Like kind sure. of sure. <laughs> but there's also you and I aren't the only ones trying to change the system, right? There's other people keeping the system in place. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of interest groups that keep that system going. And that would be white supremacy. Right. Like, mm. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yes and. <laughs> so uh, we've got a question that's come in and I'll just read it and then we can both kind of uh, process through it. The question yeah. is, how do you avoid having your circle of influence becoming a place of complacency or comfort opposed to the discomfort of growth? Right. that grows your circle of influence. Yeah. I don't know if you want to. Yeah, this is kind of the one I saw that question in the box. This is the kind of one that I was addressing. So um, two things that I've been really talking about with people. One is there's probably an aspect of discomfort though within your circle of influence. So let's bring race back into the picture. If your circle of influence, for example, are, are people who are all white, and you've been avoiding conversations about race and racism and anti-blackness in your predominantly white circle, then what does it mean to engage in that conversation? So here's a great example. I've had a number of friends who've posted, oh my gosh, I'm part of this group in my town and it started to get really racist. White people were saying unbelievable things, so I left. And I'm like, yeah, can you get back in there? <laughs> can you, unless it's like really damaging to you and toxic and it's not good for your mental health, I actually need you to get back in there because I'm definitely not going in there. <laughs> and for you as another white person, for them to hear you and engage in whiteness is actually much more helpful than them. And they probably won't even be open to me. So, right. I, and maybe that's not the spirit of the question that the person's asking, but I think there's a lot of conversations that we have to have within our own group that can cause discomfort. So I will say this, you and I roll with a lot of very liberal people. We do. Liberal, progressive. And in those liberal and progressive circles, have they talked about the ways in which their, their liberalism is oppressive? Right? Have they talked about the liberal tears that show up? 
Have they talked about the ways in which white liberalism can sometimes unchecked actually be engaging in white Eurocentric culture? Right. I've been in conversation or, or what have you. Right. There are there's some real talk that needs to happen in liberal white women's circles, people, <laughs> where right? I mean, we've seen it online, we've seen it on Twitter, and we've seen it in our group. So um, so to answer that question, I think one, don't discount that there's an aspect of discomfort that needs to happen in your circle of influence. And then two, are there things that you want to engage in in community? Right. So are there things in your local town city? Are you involved in your local Black Lives Matter movement? And is that led by black people or is it a Black Lives Matter group that's led by white people? Like, right. So just take those moments. Right. Like where where are you in that? Where is that trying to be helpful? So, Liza, it's it's like we work together or something, because uh, actually in our model and framework uh, to that initial question, uh, one of the the. I don't want to call them steps because I don't want to create the idea that this is a linear linear thing to be checked off. This is more in line with um, looped learning, right? Mm -hmm. So you're really kind of th that reflective piece. What I mean by that is the reflective piece is really important to internalizing those lessons. And one of these lessons is to embrace discomfort. Yeah. So when we're uncomfortable, often the first instinct is to run away. That's that's normal, that's natural. <laughs> but there are a lot of things in our lives that we've embraced discomfort, we've gone through it, come out the other side, and we might actually like doing that thing, all right? So we talk about, for example, wine is an acquired taste. Well, <laughs> for a lot of us who are, uh, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, so it were, in the mm -hmm. DEI, anti-racism, racial equity world, we wouldn't do this if there wasn't real pleasure in it if we couldn't find affirmation and meaning in it right and uh for the comment uh thank you for saying white supremacy out loud then let's be very clear anti-blackness is part of white supremacy so let's just be yeah. about that um yes and it was mona thank you mona um yeah so uh let me pick up the thread here where were we <laughs> yeah no i think you're talking about this level of discomfort right yes. so and so what does it mean to stay in that discomfort so i mean there's i, I want to make this comment in two ways so one as an asian american i want to make this comment and then two i'll say this comment in the space of when i find myself predominantly in groups of whiteness so I believe, so um, with the killing of George Floyd and with the killing of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, Tony McDade, Elijah McClain, Remy Mills, you know, as an Asian American in this space, in order for me to walk the walk of being in solidarity with, working in community with Black people, Black communities, Black scholars, Black teachers, Black practitioners, Black parents and caregivers, um, it was important for me, especially in those first few weeks, to do what I call come get my people, right? I found myself really diving into Asian American spaces and saying, this, we have to show up. We have to be here because what just happened three weeks earlier, the word Chinese virus and Kung flu and Wuhan virus, right, came into the national lexicon. And you know what I saw, Rico? What'd you see? My black friends, teachers, community members, caregivers, scholar, immediately on the forefront denouncing the use of a racial and ethnic term to describe the virus. And so um, three weeks later, right, George Floyd was killed. Breonna Taylor was killed. 
And it was in that moment I was like, oh, come on, family. Like, you cannot stand by. And you could, you shouldn't have stood by for generations. But now, more than ever, Asian Americans have got to be in this dialogue and have got to be in the space because Black people and Black communities, particularly in the civil rights movement, laid the foundation for us to engage in activism. And so to watch Black people advocate for us during those three weeks of COVID and quarantine, and then to do nothing in return, to do nothing in solidarity, to do nothing to speak out against violence against Black people is... I don't even, it's too strong, shameful is not even strong enough, right? It's like, this is what, like, when I think about the early movements of white supremacy dividing our communities intentionally, right? We were building up, we were amassing political and racial power. And then immediately we started to see things like Asian American whiz kids, model minority, as a way to pull apart and distance oh, yeah. Americans from black communities. Like when I think about my activism, my activism is about fighting against white supremacy. And the way I do that is by working in solidarity with Black, Latinx, Indigenous, and other BIPOC communities. And so when I think about the discomfort, it is incredibly uncomfortable for me to say I grew up anti-Black. But as an Asian American, I have to do that. I have to disclose that that's where I'm coming from. Otherwise, I feel like my activism is performative. I did not... I have not been doing anti-Black work for 44 years, right? I've been doing it for maybe 15, 20. And so I'm. my hope is that we continue as we think about Asian and Black solidarity in particular, and there's other aspects around Latinx solidarity, Indigenous solidarity, that as we think about these two communities in particular, because we titled this program this way, our common goal is to work against white supremacy so that our communities continue to be uplifted. You know, one of the other things is I was talking about the research I was doing around Asian Americans, and I'm really grateful that the PBS documentary that came out in April highlights the connective tissue of Black Americans. And, oh, series got all worked up. Asian Americans and Black communities. I think what a lot of people don't even realize, and I think Black Americans and Asian Americans, um, is that there was so much collaboration between Latinx, Black, Indigenous, and um, Asian American communities. And that I think that is intentionally left out of the books. It must be. Right? Intentionally. Like when I think of, I mean, never mind the fact that Malcolm X is left out of so many of our books. But what's also left out is the pictures of Yuri Kochiyama cradling him, right, as he was shot and killed. And so... I was a full grown adult when I learned that a Japanese American was had developed such a close relationship with Malcolm X that she ran to him in the midst of gunfire and cradled him. When I saw that, I was like I was so angry that that had been left out of my education, but then it made that connection to me and what I do within the black community like impossible to detangle. So you brought up before you know, once you see it, you can't unsee it. I can't unsee that photo of Yuri Kochiyama and Malcolm X, right? So whenever I think about these moments that are shaped to divide our communities, I go, yeah, you're not doing that to me today, right? Like that is too powerful an image for you to take from me. And so it's it's those images that drive this solidarity for me. Was there something in particular, is there a moment, and I ask people to think about this all the time, like, do you find that there was a moment for you or an image or a experience that solidified your 
work with and partnership with and solidarity towards Black people and Black communities and the work that we do together? Hmm. No, I, I wouldn't say that there's an image, but uh, I do very clearly remember when I came to work on All Aces, a question that they asked me just very point blank was, do you have a problem working in an or organization that is uh, primarily Black and primarily run by Black women? Uh-huh. And uh, I kind of had to stop for a second because uh, I, I don't have a problem with it. But if they're asking, then clearly they at least expected some resistance to it. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. And one interesting aspect about this particular memory is I, I, I think that I really don't have a problem. I actually, People that know me know that I actually end up working in places that are typically mostly women. A lot of my friends are women. Um, but the Filipino cultural background, like, mm. uh, I don't know how it is in your house, but in my families, uh, it's really very egalitarian. So men and women, mm. it's really great parody there. It's never like, oh, this is the man of the house, just not doing yeah. anything. Like, my mom would not stand for that, you know. <laughs> um, so I, I felt well prepared. But yeah. I mean, uh, the kind of mental image I have in my mind is like blackness is something that American history seems to stumble over again and again, or else tiptoe around. And it's this, this weird specter in the culture. And at some point it just became really aggravating not to address it. Like there's this thing, this presence that yeah. nobody can deny, but everybody's really invested in trying to deny it. And I don't yeah. understand. It's affecting everything we do, you know? Yes. Right. Yeah. And I, I, you know, especially coming in from this summer, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you both hopeful and discouraged, but I it was really hopeful with the shutdown with COVID and quarantine and social and physical distancing and all of that. And then probably in like the June, July midpoint, when I was noticing a lot of organizations making public statements about solidarity with Black Lives Matter and addressing internalized races or racism internally within their communities, there was an aspect of me that was like, yes, here we go. Like finally, right? This is our, here we go. This is the movement. This is the moment. Mm -hmm. And um i feel like it's fallen very short <laughs> there's right, there with you. right there's like there's some things so i guess to your point when you asked about structure versus systems i think there's some structures that are changing but the system of white supremacy the system of whiteness continues to be pervasive in education business relationships neighborhoods government right and so i do think there's some structures that have changed as a result of it a lot i work um or I follow closely the work of Hack the Gates, which uh -huh. is designed, it's an incredible organization, think tank, practice based space where uh, admission professionals are coming together to really rethink college admission, college counseling, college guidance, college acceptance as a result of the Varsity Blues scandal. And so um, I think for me, there's been some movement there as I've watched colleges, for example, uh, go you know, they don't, they're not accepting standardized testing. And we know standardized testing to be a tool of racism, right? Sure. And so there are things that are changing, but my biggest fear is like now that we're coming 
back into habits and traditions that that tradition of whiteness, the tradition of white supremacy uh, is also coming through. And so even as I think about the work that I do daily and maybe some of the reasons why people are on this call is to implore you to every day move this forward, to move justice forward, to move anti-racism forward, because when we don't, we will fall back into the pattern of racism, the pattern of whiteness, the pattern of oppression. And so um, I'm feeling both like uh, hopeful and super discouraged, like all at the same time, <laughs> right? As we move through this work. Yeah, no, I definitely feel that uh, very much as well, which is why I feel like um, having or developing community around DEI is is really very important because uh, for those of you who are not involved in social science, we do a lot of debriefing so that we can process emotions, so that we can analyze. And without this, it becomes very isolating, actually. And you can actually end up uh, doing some, some harm to yourself if you don't process things. Right. So very, very important. I think it's also important for us to mention as we are both practitioners in this space, we are actually still both on our own racial equity journey. Yeah. It's not something that can end, right? It's something that we always have to reflect on and go back to and revisit and explore the different always. corners of. Um, we've got a question that's come in uh, about, well, I'll just read it. How hard is it to yeah. <laughs> Is it to add back this information into K-12? Uh, it seems there is work to bring educators up to speed, but how long do students need to wait before being exposed to inclusive history, literature, et cetera? And yes. that is a great question, Christina. Thank you. I love this question. Thanks, Christina. So, um, so let's talk about the barriers for why this doesn't happen. So typically, I love your question around how long do we have to wait? This question comes up a lot in lots of different circles. So uh, sometimes I have this conversation with white professionals who will say, uh, Liza, I'm doing the work. I'm engaging in the kind of white literature and disrupting whiteness stuff. So like, when am I going to be ready? <laughs> this question of when I'm going to, when am I, when am I going to be ready shows up in schools because as schools, we don't ever want to roll something out until it's ready. And I remind schools that no, 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 we are so lucky because we work in schools, which are primed to be places of learning and mistakes and failures, except we've gotten away from that model. Yep. We've gotten away from the model as schools, as a place to experiment and engage and try on new ideas. We've got, we've moved to the model of schools have to get it right every time. And I think that's been one of the most damaging things that we've done. Right. Some of it is like a capitalist system for people who pay in independent schools. They're like, um, we don't want you to experiment. We just want you to get it right. And I'm like, okay, that's not what schools are, right? Schools are about experimenting. So to answer your question, Christina, one, you don't have to do it on your own. There is so much out there for you to just pick up as a lesson plan. Teaching tolerance has phenomenal lesson plans like that are aged out K3, 3, 5, 9, 12. Um, that are timed. They're just the labor that went into those lesson plans are phenomenal. Two, so, the tolerance.org. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, the second thing, so for if you're teaching kind of high schoolers, is facing history in ourselves, right? Their boss, their some of their main offices are here in Boston. Again, phenomenal lesson plans that are already put together. You don't even have to do the lesson planning work. 
right? And then, oh, I forgot the other one. Oh, three, the Pollyanna curriculum that's based out of New York. Pollyanna has a whole bunch of thing around curriculum and literacy where they literally package the lesson plans for you. So those are a couple, teaching tolerance, facing history, Pollyanna. Uh, I feel like there's so many more. <laughs> oh, 1619 project, right? Oh, the 1619 yeah. curriculum. Like, so in terms of a logistical piece, um, in terms of logistical piece, Christina, it, the logistics are there. So let's now address this third piece. How do you feel? So this is Rico's point about reflection. How do you feel about teaching this? Are you prepared to not get it totally right? Uh, do you have the support of your administrators, principals, people who hold up accountability measures to say, now is the time, it might not be perfect, but I'm going to put it out there. Um, so it's actually teachingtolerance.org. Um, yeah. we'll this mirrors your, your experience, but what I've learned as a teacher is uh, when I'm teaching, that helps me to actually learn the material better. And, and a lot of novice teachers have this uh, huge weight on their shoulders, like, oh, I got to get everything right. Right. <laughs> but making mistakes is important for you as a teacher, but also for us as students, because that's where the learning happens, right? And yeah. so if we've created the system where making mistakes is wrong and bad right. and less possible, then right. at the other end, we're gonna get a lower quality result, right? Exactly, right. Yeah, and so I pay attention to a lot of adult culture. We certainly do this for students, but what is the adult culture around take around trying things on? Like if we say you're not going to get the race talk perfectly right, then what permission and structures have we created for adults to not get the race talk totally right? Right. So what does that look like? So I run into, you know, I, I work with over 175 different schools and organizations and every single one of them is terrified about getting it wrong. And I'm like, so what happens? Right. You you, what part of white culture is being is perfection. And so if we are trying to resist against white professional culture, then you have to resist against perfection. And so what does that mean? What does that look like? But um, so I hope that gives you a little bit, Christina. It's possible. You can do it. And again, you have the logistical tools there. What is the conversation around conflict and support for you? I've been in enough schools where a teacher uh, was putting forward some sort of lesson plan or curriculum only to then be disciplined by their principals or parents or whatever. So um, there's an aspect of communication that gets rolled out to that, but it's it's possible. You don't have to you don't have to wait, right? The, the logistics are all there for you. Yeah, that was a great question. Um, so we are coming towards the end of our time. I can't believe it's passed so quickly. <laughs> um, but one thing I always like to ask guests, and I say always, even though this is like the fifth episode or something, but yeah. um, <laughs> like, what is like, just briefly, Liza, like, what is something that you would love to see come out of your work? Oh, gosh. Okay. So I have two strands of my work. The first part of the work is the Asian American strand. And so... Um, I'm speaking to my people, to Asian Americans, that there is an aspect of our experience, particularly if you grew up in the United States, that has been very uh, socialized towards whiteness, right? Our education, our experiences, the manipulation around identity with things like 
model minority and perpetual foreigner, like all of some of these big words. And so I'm asking, I'm calling in Asian Americans to understand that there's an, we have to do some decolonizing, right, of our minds. We have to really put into check this internalized racism that largely was influenced outside of who you are, right? I implore you to really think about how structures were created to divide us from Black people and Black communities, and what does it mean to repair that? What does it mean to come together knowing that we are not each other's common enemy, right? Like, so what does it mean to genuinely and authentically work in that space? And then the second thing I will just mention is my space around education, that education has been used as a tool for compliance, mm -hmm. and I'm interested in education as a tool of disruption. And so what does it mean to provide discourse, skills for dialogue, engage in conflict so that we're teaching young people, and I'm teaching my grad students this, we are teaching them to engage in discourse productively as opposed to avoiding it and creating a false sense of peace and harmony, right? So disrupting education through textbooks, teaching, pedagogy, assessment, discipline, there's a lot that needs to be disrupted in there. So as you think about what is the disruption, uh, those are kind of the two calls to action that I would hope people learn from the work that I do. So all that sounds super scary, but <laughs> what makes it less scary is that we've got fantastic people like Liza. Oh, everything again, Liza and uh, all aces. We're all in this space together. Uh, I don't know about you, Liza, but I I'm, very open to people connecting with me on LinkedIn, for example. And uh, we're always working hard to develop uh, spaces for people to connect uh, through uh, our website, intentionallyact.com, as well as our social media. Uh, and hopefully we'll be able to continue doing things with Liza because she's so fantastic. And I think that this is a really important aspect of uh, racial equity that doesn't always get as much attention. A lot of the focus is on what's happening between black groups and white groups, but there's a whole lot of different people that exist uh, outside of those two groups. However, anti-blackness does very much inform how we see each other and how we yeah. interact with our world. Yeah. Yes. 100%. Yeah. Cool. Thank uh, you. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say in closing? Anything you've been working on yeah. to promote? Yeah. So I would just say, I know Rico, you were like, it's so scary. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's especially when you're here together and you have a community that can do this together. Right. So don't go it alone. I mean, yes, it can feel overwhelming, but uh, one of the things that stops you is feeling overwhelmed. Um, for those who are on this call, who sometimes feel a sense of guilt, I want you to reframe guilt as an invitation to learn more. Right. I'm feeling this. I'm feeling guilty. What is the invitation? What can you do? One, be in community. Don't isolation is probably one of the worst things that can happen when you're doing activist work Two, constantly critique these messages that you've gotten about yourself and other communities. And I will say three, um, I'm in the final stages of finishing up my book, which actually has a lot of these kind of activities that are helpful. Uh, more to come. We'll put that out hopefully in the next three to five months as a way for you to be reflective in this journey together. But keep up the great work. We can do this, right? Don't get discouraged. Thank you for being here and for engaging this conversation and totally welcome connecting offline as well. 
Thank yeah, you. like uh, we would not be sitting here having this conversation if we didn't think it was possible, <laughs> uh, for sure. And uh, yes, just to reinforce the point, it is less scary when you've got yeah. uh, faces you might recognize or somebody that you might be able to reach out to. Um, so sorry about the truck outside my window. But, uh, yeah, very, very interested in engaging with everybody on this topic further. So uh, if you're watching this after it goes live, we can still see the comments after the fact. So please do feel free to, uh, to leave them there. Um, let's see, on our side, all this is on air. We've got another episode coming up uh next week i believe just let me double check um on the 25th it looks like and that will be with chris conroy anyway thank you again so much liza tolusan and thank you everybody for watching this is rico manalo with all aces on air thanks and have a great rest of your day You've been listening to Intentionally Act Live from our website, intentionallyact.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Submit your stories and questions for future episodes by emailing us at info at Until next time.